This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. And the last time we were here in chapter 12, we talked about our responsibilities toward our Creator. Remember, God wants a personal relationship with us. He sent His Son down to the earth to die for our sins, to teach us the way, and to teach us how to have a personal relationship with God. So just like in any responsible relationship, we also have responsibilities to God. Now this morning we're going to be in Hebrews 13. We're only going to cover 12 verses. Uh, we're going to divide the chapter up into two sermons. And this is really the last chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. Okay? Now, think about this. Parting thoughts, parting words. The author of Hebrews writes this very lengthy letter where we, we've been studying for 2,000 years. And he leaves us with this last chapter. And what would he want to say to his readers? Think about you. If you were writing a very important letter to somebody that you cared for greatly or had some type of mentorship relationship, what would you want to say to them in summation, the last thing that you would say? Well, love is going to be a big part of it. Uh, love is important as a believer. Uh, we have a different type of love, you know, the love of God inside of us. Uh, so that's what we're, it's going to be uh, really focused on and living out our faith in love. Kind of reminds me of a, a Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy, a uh, comic strip, and at one point, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, explain love to me. Charlie Brown says to Lucy, you know, I think I'm unqualified. You know, you might want to read a book or a poem or go to an expert. And she says, try, Charlie Brown, try. So Charlie Brown says, well, let's just say I'm standing here and this cute girl walks by, and Lucy interrupts him and says, why do you have to fall in love with a cute girl? Why can't she have freckles and a big nose? So Charlie Brown, trying to placate her, says to her, Okay, let's say that I'm standing here and this girl with a great big nose walks by. Lucy interrupts him again and says, Charlie Brown, I didn't say a great big nose. Not only can you not explain love, but you can't even talk about it. <laughs> so hopefully, as we go through the scripture this morning, we can do a better job speaking about love, biblical love, than uh, certainly Lucy and Charlie Brown. So verse 1. In Hebrews 13, he says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, and those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now we look at this, and these are sort of, we're going to cover what you could say are bullet points. And how does this all come together? Well, we can kind of encapsulate this in love in the social realm. It's kind of hard to call ourselves Christians if we don't exude love, if we don't exhibit love, if we don't have that love that God fills us with, right, in the form of his Holy Spirit inside of us, and, and he wants us to have that love, and he helps us to have it. But what is love? Well, we know love is attractive, but is it Hollywood love? Is that gushy, effusive type of love that you see so often on the silver screen? Well, Proverbs 27, 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So sometimes love can be painful. It can wound. 
If we love somebody and we see they're going, taking the wrong path, we may have to afflict them or wound them to get their attention. It may be difficult at first for the relationship, but really we're, we're seeking the other person's uh, benefit and well-being. So verse 1, let brotherly love continue. I'm going to play around with the Greek a little bit. I'm going to go into the Greek. The Bible was written in the Koine Greek. The whole ancient world understood that language. It's pretty impressive. And it says, let brotherly love continue. The Greek word is Philadelphia, right? The name of this, the city. You, you might not know by the high crime rate, but it was originally named that for a, a reason, the city of brotherly love. Now, this love is, is transcendent. And basically, it transcends uh, you know, the type of biological love that we have with our siblings and our families. You know, the Bible says that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So when we become believers, uh, we exhibit a love that actually can be stronger and transcend biological bonds. Now, I'm going to play again with the Greek a little bit. The word is phileo, to love. And that's the verb. And philos is the noun, uh, love. However, the word philos can mean friend. It's this close, intimate, personal friendship type of love. Now, I think it's funny because phileo can actually mean the verb to friend. And before Facebook, we didn't understand what it meant to friend somebody, right? <laughs> but let me tell you something else. This goes, Facebook or friending in Facebook is really a misnomer. Because if you have thousands of friends, you can't really phileo them unless you have a personal relationship outside of the computer screen. Because this love is a more intimate, more close type of love. So I'm laying the foundation here. Number two, he says, oh, let me just say this importantly, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should have this phileo love for each other. If we're really filled with the Holy Spirit and Christ is our, our mooring point, our anchoring point, we should have this close love with each other as believers in the body of Christ. We'll be spending eternity with each other. But not to worry, it'll be without the sin. <laughs> to some of you, that's a little frightening. So two, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now this, the love of strangers, some translations have, don't forget to show hospitality. So let me just talk to you about the origina originations of these words. The original Greek word is philonexia, which actually comes from philoxenos. We're seeing the same root, philo. And what it literally means is to love strangers. Now, the incentive here in the scripture is we might be entertaining angels. Uh, but we should do it anyway. <laughs> Sometimes we love as believers, and we really need supernatural strength to do it because it doesn't come easy. Now, in Genesis 18, Abraham, when he saw the three, what he thought were men coming towards him, he ran and got food together. These were strangers, and he put out food, and he was very hospitable to them. Actually, in the Middle East, people are still very hospitable. We kind of lose that a little bit in Western culture. You know, it's an honor for them to entertain strangers, to be hospitable. Okay, And I've heard many of your angel stories, and some, some come to me sheepishly and, and say, Pastor, I have a, a story, and I think, you know, it was, and they're kind of maybe intimidated to say it openly, but they'll tell me, and listen, I'm cool with that. I believe that there are supernatural beings that, that come into, in and out of this world. We've seen it in the scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. So if you believe that that might be a possibility, then it might be. 
I remember a story. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I go through Jamesburg a lot, and we found a guy, and it was cold out, and he was laying across the sidewalk. And it was very obvious. So we went up to him, and we woke him up. We started talking to him, and we got him some food, and we got him some gloves and a hat, and we, we kind of did these things back and forth with this guy. And he kind of appeared out of nowhere. We never saw him before. Very unique-looking person. And then he disappeared just as quickly as we had seen him. So, you know, I looked for him, like, for weeks, and I couldn't find him. So one day I called my wife and say, Babe, I found him. Who? And I told her, our friend. So she said, do you think he was an angel? I said, no. She said, why not? I said, because he used the F word too much. <laughs> but either way, we, ent we entertained him. We were being hospitable. So verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them and those who were mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Love for prisoners. Now let me put this in context, and then let's talk a little bit about prison ministry. Okay? So in context, at this time, the Roman world had turned against the Christians, and they were starting to be in prison. They were starting to be harassed by the government, much like what happens in most of the world outside of our Western bubble. And listen, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're suffering. It wasn't like the prison system today. You didn't get dental care and health care, and you know, if, you didn't, if your family didn't bring you food and amenities, you didn't get them. So he said, don't forget to minister to these people. Kind of goes back to the first point, right? That Philadelphia, that brotherly love. And the Apostle Paul, in some of his writings, dealt with abandonment issues, didn't he? As we read through the scripture, he had some difficulty and loneliness. Some ministered to him, but some fled. They didn't want to be associated with him because they didn't want the target on their back. So this is a command in scripture that the writer of Hebrews is giving us. Now, I'll tell you this, too, that there is an application for prison ministry. I know Brother Arnie is in here somewhere. He goes into the prisons faithfully on Friday nights and ministers. He's been doing this for years. Some of them come to salvation, and then when they're saved, uh, he continues to preach the Bible to have them grow in their faith, and it's a great thing. Uh, really, the love of Christ is there to melt the heart of the prisoners, to show them that love. You know, to open up their understanding about that, about the, how much God loves them, even though they may be in, prisoner, in prison. And he also says to minister to those that are mistreated. He says, you're in the body also. What does that mean? That means that we're in the body. We're in the flesh. We get cold. We get tired. We get hungry. We, we need ne our, our needs ministered to. Right? And when we're mistreated, things are worse. I think about Pastor Saeed in Iran. We thought Evan was a bad uh, prison, and they moved him to a worse one, and he's got physical ailments from the beatings he's received and just because he's a pastor. So at the very least, here in America, we should be praying for him and the persecuted church. But the downtrodden, and, and I love the way Jesus says to, be, to treat others or to love others the way you would want to be treated. Remember the Good Samaritan. He was robbed, beaten, left for dead in the hot sun, and who, who passed by him and did nothing? None but the religious men. They looked at him and they didn't want to get involved. They kept going. Who ministered to his needs? The dreaded Samaritan that everybody hated. They, they were the lower class in that society. And Jesus really turned their thinking around about that, how we look at others. But listen, if you're really in a bad place, you don't really care who ministers to you. And it starts to break down your prejudices and your thinkings about others. 
So to, to minister to those who have been downtrodden, who have been mistreated, do we do that? Is that a part of our Christian walk? You can almost take out a scorecard as we read this, right? Verse 4. It says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So in this part, we see now that we should love our spouse in many different ways. Agape, phileo, really storge, and eros, the four Greek words for love. Now in the English, they're all translated love, but each one has a particular meaning. As a matter of fact, this is the first part where human sexuality is now introduced into love. Eros, the word that erotic comes from. Now, before you think I've lost my mind by saying that at the pulpit, unfortunately, Satan and the pornography industry have taken that beautiful word, sexual love, and have destroyed it and manipulated it and made it dirty. And that's what Satan does. Everything that God makes beautiful, Satan comes and he tries to twist it and pervert it. Did somebody turn up the heat in here? I'm starting to sweat. No. <laughs> Marriage is the only safe place for sexuality. I think about my wood-burning stove, and I love that thing. I'm starting to use it now in the cold weather. And I just keep throwing logs in there, and it just keeps getting hotter and brighter, and it, it actually brings heat to the entire house. However, if I was to take that same wood and paper and my lighter and all the stuff I throw in there and start to build a fire on my dining room floor, I would burn the house down. And that's where sexuality is like. It's that fire that does a lot of good, and it's a blessing, okay? And, and we shouldn't shy away in the scripture when it, comes to, uh, when it comes up to talk about sexuality, because it is a form of love, but it's only safe under the confines of marriage. Amen? Amen. Now listen. We all make mistakes in life and we see what society is doing and some of us succumb to the things that society is doing and there's always forgiveness and there's always repentance. Satan wants us to carry shame and guilt and whatever you've been involved in, that's not where he wants you to be. He wants you to walk in forgiveness and restoration. No shame. We're not to be shamed in the body of Christ. That's not what God wants. He wants us to have freedom. Okay? Now, some will say, and I'll say, do you really love each other? Then make the commitment. Some will say to me, well, it's only a piece of paper. And I would say, then don't be afraid of the piece of paper. Make the commitment. So, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have to find that connection there. I'm going to make that nexus. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we're to love, not envy, those that have more than us. And again, there's a conversation in society because things are going bad economically. And the conversation in the world is to envy or to uh, have disdain for those that have more than us. However, that's not what the scripture says. We're to love them. And we're also to love God by being content with what he has given us. It's sad to say, but there are some Christians who have real big eyes, and they're not happy unless they're getting something. They're not happy unless they're indulging their flesh. They're not happy unless they're spending money on something. And that's not what God wants us to have. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. As a pastor, I minister to all types of people. 
And I cannot be, I cannot have biases. If I walk into a wealthy person's home and they don't know the Lord and I'm ministering to them, and I have before, and they don't know the Lord, and I look around and go, is that mahogany? Is that real gold? Whoa, look at that staircase. I'm spinning around, getting dizzy. And that wealthy person is looking at me saying, but I have all this. I want to know what you have because I don't have what you have, Jesus Christ. If I act like what they have is better than what Jesus has given me or what Jesus can provide, you think that they're going to want to be one to Christ? It can't affect us. It's got to roll off of our back. And there's a, another Greek word, the phil, again, the, the root there, phil arguros, which literally, literally means to love silver. Now that is the word for covetousness. We don't really understand that because we use paper money or we use electronic money. And that's a big part of the problem that we have in our country. But to love silver back in the day meant you just loved that silver. You loved money. And that's what the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not having it, not being wealthy, but having that love, that lust for money. Phil Arguras. Again, we need to be content with what God has given us. Not all of us, and I hear these commercials too, and they're supposedly biblically based, and everybody can be a millionaire, and oh man, I just want to turn the radio off and go to another station because it's annoying, because it's not scriptural. There's nothing wrong with working hard, nothing wrong with being wealthy, but our love of God has to take precedence over everything else. Now, what is the big payout? What's the big reward? What's our lottery? The fact that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He makes a promise to his people. It's as if God is saying to us, you know what the big payout is? Me. You can have all of me that you want. Jesus says, pray for the Holy Spirit. God will give you as much of the Holy Spirit as you ask for. God says, me, am I good enough? No matter what condition you're in. And we should be. He'll be our companion, our help in time of need. Our help when faltering, when everyone else has forsaken us, he will still be there for us even if we've sinned. Keep that in mind. If everybody else walks away from us and we become the pariah of the community, God will still be there for us. He'll be cheering us on. He'll be helping us to get on the right foot again and to move forward with our lives. He's someone to run to for safety and protection if we allow it. Now to me, that is priceless. If you can find a mate who's a good Christian, who envelops some of these qualities on, a, on an earthly level, you found something good. Hold on to that mate for dear life. If you found a friend that sticks closer to, than a brother, in times of good or bad, they're there for you. Well, God, of course, is the, is the, uh, the beginning of that. He's the origin, right? And, and that's, that's exciting. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, that is found in Deuteronomy 36. However, it's repeated in the scripture in Joshua 1.5 and 1 Chronicles 28.20. So it's an overriding theme in the scripture. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6. And a lot of the early Christians used the Psalms and they were blessed by it. They memorized the Psalms. It gave them comfort. It is amazing how the Psalms, if you really meditate on it, you can just carry that throughout your whole life. It's a, it's a very unique portion of the scripture. When my son was little, he just, his favorite book was the book of the Psalms. He used to write in his little Bible like Daddy did. It was really cool. 
But love, it can melt the hardest of hearts if a person is willing. And in summation, as believers, we're not called to be sterile, uncompassionate, unfriendly, snooty. I don't understand haughty Christians. I don't understand unfriendly believers. I don't get it because it's not reflected in the scripture. We're called to be the opposite. And as the more we we grow in Christ, the more our desire is for the unsaved, no matter who they are. Even if you don't have the means to have regular conversations to be praying for their salvation, it's what drives us as believers. Love drives us, the love to see the world saved as God wants to see the world saved. It's what helps us to put these cathexes into people, this expenditure of emotional and of spiritual and of physical, uh, a part of us that we try to pour into others in mentoring and seeing them grow, right? It's just the, no matter what, you know, you think about your life and who you are, when you, you know, get to be my age in your 40s, you pretty much know who you are at that point. But as a believer, you understand that that's overriding, no matter who you think you are. That's got to take precedence, and it's motivated by love. Amen? Verse 7. It says, Remember those who rule over you or who lead over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Again, it almost looks like it's randomness here, bullet points, but you can see love is really the thing that ties everything together. And this is love in the spiritual realm. I'm going to actually save verse 7 until next Sunday when we're in verse 17 because those two are inextricably linked as far as I'm concerned. But three entities we should be spiritually loving and submitting to. Spiritual leaders that God ordained to spiritually lead the body. Two, of course, Jesus Christ in verse 8. And three, the word of God that never changes, although many try to reinterpret it. And I've heard all the arguments and, you know, I've done all the studies. Well, not all of them, but most of them. And you know, people say, well, you know, the Bible is translated and translated. That's such a lame argument. And I say to people, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read where the Old Testament comes from? Did you ever hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Do you understand the Masoretic text? Do you understand the Koine Greek? Do you understand the Coptic Greek text that, or, or excuse me, Egyptian text that were found? Do you understand, you know? So what happens is you take these 20, some 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament and put them together. It doesn't matter. Different cultures wrote them, different languages. They all came from the same original and they all agree with each other. As a matter of fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were found, was a huge uh, blow to this, this type of fallacious argument, so to speak. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they actually, I don't know if you know this, but this year they went on tour, and I think it's like a yearly thing. And believe me, there's armed security that's, that's keeping an eye on, on these things. They don't want them to get stolen. It's kind of funny how um, God uses man's desire for authenticity and old things and holding on to old stuff to actually preserve the integrity of these old scriptures. Some of them are in British museums. Some of them are in Israeli museums. A lot of the artifacts when Iraq was invaded, that they were very careful not to mess with the museums, even during the invasion, because there's some things that you can't, you can't undo, you can't get them back. So when we look at the, the translations, we go all the way back to the original text, and they're available, right? They've been 
written out for us. They've been copied for us. So when they took the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, dated circa 100 BC, and they started to put them with our modern texts in like the, the, the 1950s, they found that except for a, a copyist error or a smudge or something, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Hebrew uh, letters and such, uh, that they found that there was a great matching and integrity and there was no, no issue at all. And I've talked about this many times from the scriptures. So God's word will be maintained. That's how important God views his word. So he will make sure, even though we're fallible and sinful, that we do things to maintain his word and it's available for all of us to read. So that's, to me, that's very exciting. Now what we have is that two out of the three here, Jesus Christ and the word, are two things that never change. People change, but God doesn't change. I'll read that again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable. It's a fancy word for he does not change. And Christ as God does not change either. Somebody knocks on your door and says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Do you know at one point he was an angel, at one point he was a man? That's what the cults do. They twist it. Jesus Christ never changes. And he's never ceased to be deity. Before he was the babe in the manger, he was almighty God. When he was in the babe in the manger, he still was almighty God. Now let me help you out with this because I think things too. I always wonder, the babe in the manger, how did God get all his godness into that little baby? How could he be fully God and fully man? Because in our minds, we think of, you know, chemistry and physics and he must have a, God must be very massive. That baby must have been very heavy. But remember, God is spirit. God is not, he doesn't, he's not part of his creation that he has to follow those laws. Remember the miracles that Jesus did? So God is spirit. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. We have to make sure we remember that. The problem with people is people change. Friends change, don't they? If you've lived long enough, people get weird, right? I didn't think I would get that much of a response. Jobs change. Circumstances change. Bosses change. Thankfully, God doesn't change, right? In mathematics, I love math, uh, we call that a constant. You can always count on the constant to never change. (laughs) So God never changes. Verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Let me break this down a little bit. God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. Now, churches do this too. Pastors, ministries, we've got to get more people in the church. See, I'm not concerned about that. We've got to get more people in the church, so we've got to make God relevant. We have to make Jesus relevant. Really. Unfortunately, the way that we sometimes make Jesus relevant is we lower him to our expectations and our standards, and God will not be lowered to that position. How can we love God? By being consistent with Christ and his word and his doctrines as God is consistent with us. He's looking for a little consistency from us. And, and, and here's the thing. What society hasn't risen and fallen? That we have to apply God to make him relevant to that society. We're doing that in the United States. There's a big discussion in the church. There's a lot of uh, discrepancies and, and arguments about it. I just read something where a church was using beer to attract new, ne- new members. I read this. 
<laughs> I read a lot. So this is this big beer thing that this church is doing to get people. What about the, those that struggle with alcoholism? You think that's loving them? You think that could stumble them? Not, not for nothing. I don't know about you, but I used to drink. I don't want Jesus being my drinking buddy. You know what I'm saying? I want him to be distinct and separate. I want a different relationship with Jesus Christ than a drinking buddy. And here's the thing. I read another article recently in Tennessee that the authorities had to come and remove 50 venomous snakes from a church. The snake handlers? That's weird, man. Okay? The Bible says strange. I like the word weird. That's weird. Okay? They take one scripture, one verse, out of the entire New Testament, and they twist it to say now a whole church has revolved around handling venomous snakes. And guess what? Some people have died and gotten very sick. How smart is that? That's a pretty bad test of faith as far as I'm concerned. There's no forgiveness in that. And I would say this too. I'm all about love. I'm all about grace. But if I have to make Christ weird to reach you, you're not worth it. My wife has often said this with the women. How important do you value Jesus? How much do we have to twist him and change him and fit him into our schedules so that he can, we can appreciate him? Not for nothing we need to change. He doesn't. He's immutable. He's perfect from the beginning. How much do you value your relationship with God? Don't turn it into a common thing like we do with many things on this earth because it has to be distinct and separate. He says this, the heart is established with grace, not foods or legalistic observances, which profited nobody to date. This is very powerful. Now let's put this in context. Everything is context. The scripture twisters will never teach you context. Context is the letter was written to Hebrew Christians who were struggling with persecution and they were tempted to go back into the old legal system that from the time of the letter in a few years was going to be destroyed by the Romans anyway. It wasn't going to exist. All the gold was going to be melted. Stuff was going to be carried away by Titus Vespasian and his armies away. And he's saying to them, don't go back to that old system, those legalistic observances. However, in Christianity, we see that too. Even the Apostle Paul says, what are you guys doing? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. How many denominations preach that stuff? Well, you have to do this, and you have to follow this rule, and you can't touch that, you can't do that, and you can't wear that, and you can't look like this, and make your hair look a certain way, and don't wear makeup. Oh my goodness, that could drive you nuts. That's like the religious board game. And he says, basically, that nobody has ever done this well, because it's not the way to get to God. It has to be a heart issue. It has to be a right relational standing with God. And the first thing we do is trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the first step to having a relationship with God. Remember, God did all the heavy lifting. If we're doing all this heavy lifting in religion and it's become burdensome, it's not right. Something is wrong. Read the Bible. Is this in the scripture? Because Christ did all that heavy lifting. He lifted that cross for you. And on top of the cross, he lifted your sins. And he died for your sins. So all you have to do is believe. Now, I, I can see, again, this becomes like this type of religious um, this failure, in a sense, because it's really true that it's love and grace that attracts us to Christ. It's love and grace. Put everything aside. Put all the relevancy issues. It's the love and grace. That's what attracted me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as his agents, 
as Christians, as pastors, we need to make that clear that when we go out into the world that they understand that God loves them and it's, it's, they've been saved by grace, right? That grace, that instead of giving us the punishment that we deserve for our sins, he's instead chosen to bear the burden and the justice and the penalty for those sins but give us everlasting life. And that has to play out in word and deed. Verse 10. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So this is where we're going to end for this morning. And what he's talking about is those who... Those religious men, those spiritual men who should have understood and known better under the new covenant that all their sacrifices and, and serving at the tabernacle were, was not going to save. He said they don't even have the right to serve at the altar, the altar of Christ, because they're still trying to do it through the old way. They're still trying to work their way through their salvation. You don't have to work your way to salvation. I know... Listen, we, we deal with scams all the time now. There's these online scams, there's email scams, and, and people give you these things and they say it's too good to be true. I'm just going to say this as a public service announcement. Don't fall into that stuff, you know. If it's too good to be true, just delete it. Don't even open it. It's going to probably twist your computer somehow. So we're all on edge, especially in this area in 2013. Well, what's the catch? Well, what is it? What's your angle at the church? There is no angle. Jesus said to the disciples, freely you have received, freely give to others. He didn't want money or burdens to be attached to them going out and giving the message of salvation. And verse 12, where we end today is Jesus taken outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, and the shame was poured upon him. He, was, he died like a criminal. They crucified him. They mocked him while he was bleeding to death. Okay, he was humiliated on that cross for love. Now I want to introduce, and, and we've, you've heard a lot of this from this pulpit, um, the other Greek word for love is agape. And we make the distinction between agape and phileo. We started with phileo, that closeness, that friendship, that intimate uh, type of love. And we're ending with agape because uh, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. That word is agape. It's a different word. When God so loved the world, it was an obedient, believe it or not, the son was obedient to the plan of salvation. It was an obedient love. It was a sacrificial love. It definitely wasn't a squishy, loving, intimate love, and I'll tell you why. Because the son of God should not have to pay for our sins, but he did. So, was the father thrilled to see his son paying the price for all of our sins? No, but he did it because he loved us. He had this agape love, this overriding sacrificial love for us. And that, is, that word is used in John 3.16. So we start with love, we end with love. God is love. God created love for us as humans to enjoy. And when you're being loved... When you're being ministered to, there is no other feeling on the earth like it. Stuff, you know, it's funny because even when we accumulate wealth, when we accumulate stuff, if we're alone, does it really make us happy? We want to share it with someone, don't we? We want to, you know, 
be with somebody and share the vacations, share the, you know, the things that we have, you know, share the, the good times. Because God has made us to love and to enjoy that love. It's a good thing. God expects us to exhibit love in our dealings with others. That's where we started this morning. And our dealings and relationships with him. At the very least, we as believers should be sharing that love with each other others in the fold. What did Jesus say in John 13? I love this. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Jesus had agape love for people, but he also had phileo love. Remember, he had that close love with John and James and Matthew. And, you know, sometimes you see the movies and we don't know how it played out, but you could just imagine Jesus being very hands-on hugging, smiling, laughing, sharing, staying up till you know, late at night, just having discussions with these men. He was fully God, but fully man. He got to enjoy love in different ways. Amen? So he says, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. A little repetitive here. By this, all, everybody on the outside, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews wanted the Hebrew Christians to live out, live out a legacy of love. And that's where it ends 2,000 years ago? No. No. What do we get out of this? This is the living word. I don't care how old the scripture is I'm reading. This is what we do. Observation, interpretation, and application is always an application for our lives today. I don't care how society changes. What does God want for us? He also wants us to live out our faith and live out a legacy of love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you.